0: You're listening to The World Transform. This is a recording of a talk called Whose Media Is It Anyway?
1: We're joining about five minutes in just as Rebecca Omanira Oyakami explains how she got
0: started in journalism. The rest of the panel is Justin Cholsberg, uh, Bahaska Sankara, Clive Lewis MP, and Ellie Mayo Um I spent two years in finance journalism.
2: As part of my apprenticeship, and also worked in um, the Washington Post London bureau for a bit as well. Um, but since two thousand and eleven, I've been—I um, began to—I started covering the irregular movement of people in and around the European Union, and telling stories of, um, for example, Iraqi and Afghan hunger strikers in uh, Athens, um, Eritreans in Italy and Calais, Syrians in Bulgaria and Turkey. And these stories taught me that the problems within the common European asylum system actually begin outside of Europe, um, beyond the continent's borders in countries like Libya and Morocco, um, which has, over the years, signed various agreements with the European Union as a bloc and individual member states, which have resulted in things like um, immigration detention centres being built in in parts of Africa, um, where horrible things have happened in those places for years. But fortunately, that's starting to come out now. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, the work that I do in the UK um, is focused around things like immigration detention, and I'm particularly interested in in reporting more on the impact of these sorts of policies on black and brown working-class communities. Um, An example of how it does affect this particular group is back in May, I wrote about three young boys whose dad was deported. And they live with him um, and their mom in a small flat in North London. And their dad, Michael, ran a garage. It was his own garage. Um, after the recession in 2008, he ran into some trouble. And he did some dodgy things. He borrowed money from a dodgy source, got into trouble, um, went to prison, served his time. Um, he was considered so low risk that he was, towards the end of his sentence, he was transferred to an open prison um, his final report, like his probation report, said that you know he didn't even need that much re- re- rehabilitation because he was so low risk. Um, anyway, so he got out of prison. He found work as a technician. It was good and steady work. Things were going well with his kid's mum. They had another kid. Um, and then in 2014, the family decided they wanted to go on holiday and he tried to renew his passport. Now, parallel to... This family trying to get on with their lives, the political rhetoric against migrants, starting from Daily Mail headlines in 2001, praising David Blunkett for locking up refugees right up to today, and Theresa May's hostile environment for immigrants. Um, All of this was getting worse, um, and it it would start to have an effect on this family. Um, The dad of the family, Michael, was actually born abroad. He arrived in this country as a teenager, And this meant that there would be no second chance for him. So one day he was, as is often typical for a black man living in London, stopped and searched by the police. The police told him that um, they had on record that immigration has serious interest in you. And after that, for the next two or three years, he was in and out of immigration detention, denied access to work. And finally, in June, he was deported back to. Sorry, he was deported um, away from this country. I'm not. It's not supposed to be known where he went to because he's worried about things that can happen to him there. But you won't be able to identify him from this. Um, so after he was deported, he was. Um, he let his kids were left. They're British citizens. Um, so they're now going to grow up without their dad. The mum works part time, so she can't afford to take them to visit him. And. She will have to rely on benefits to top up her wages, which she's also subject to things like the bedroom tax. Um, They've also got a lot of debt because um, legal aid has been cut for immigration work. Um, And they've had to use most of their savings to pay for immigration solicitors. So their their story is a really good example of the way things like austerity um, and immigration policy are affecting a huge cross-section of working class families in the UK. Um, I also write a lot about um, inequalities in mental health support, state-sponsored destitution of women with no recourse to public funds. Again, this is mainly affecting black and brown women in the UK. Um, I've attended social housing eviction hearings at county courts and written about the impact of low-paid work and benefit cuts on people being able to afford to pay their rent, Um, the impact of austerity on single parents, cuts to domestic violence services, services that have been built up that were built up by feminist movements in the 70s and 80s are now being destroyed by austerity and, and the way that um, changes to commissioning services. And again, all of this is linked to corporations delivering public services for profit because they're taking over these spaces that were once filled by feminist groups. Um, so, much of the work, the reason I sort of gave you that background is to give you an idea of the type of work that I'm doing and why it's so difficult to place within the mainstream media. It's, very, it's um, quite time intensive, um, it's investigative work, um, and it's not the sort of work that a black woman is going to be paid to do. They, there is that work going on, but it's not by someone who looks like me. Um, so much of the work that I do is um, placed within independent media, and that's media that's often sprung up to fill a gap that's left by more, more established and traditional outlets. And for the last two or three years, for example, I've worked editing and commissioning and writing for Lacuna magazine. Um, It's an online magazine. And the goal of the magazine is to challenge the indifference to suffering and promote human rights as something that everyone can and should be able to understand. Um, And the aim is to fill the gap between sort of short, fast 24-hour news and more long-term academic analysis. And this was set up by two law academics, one of whom was Andrew Williams, who who wrote um, the book uh, A Very British Killing, which is about the death of Baha Musa in Iraq, and that won the Orwell Prize in 2013, and he's an academic. So it's an example of the way that non-journalists are producing very good journalism that that, that should be done by established journalists that's not. Um, I think the internet and online and new media um, has helped democratise the media as a whole. But one of the things that we need to do is democratise access to the skills and craft of the trade needed for good journalism. It's not just about <laughs> teaching objectivity, because I don't personally believe in that. Like I'm very biased in what I choose to report on. I write about politics, but I very rarely interview politicians. It's mainly... My bias is that I will go to someone who's being affected by the decisions that are made by politicians. So what I mean by skills is the need, um, the skills needed to actually do the work. I think, and and quite a few of my panelists have, fellow panelists have touched upon this. Um, I think if alternative or indie media or new media, or whatever you want to call it, if we are to replace um, and be a reliable alternative to the mainstream media, I think we need to think about labor, the labor of journalism. It can't just be a hobby that you can do alongside other part-time jobs. Like, I'm sure Ellie has had this experience, but i doing a lot of this freelance. Now I make it work, but five years ago, I was working in call centers, I was doing all, short, all sorts to support the work. Um, so this, this is one of the big issues of, of left-wing media, I think. And I, I think it could be more radical, and it's not, because I, I don't see the point in a left-wing alternative media that just mirrors the structures of The established media, Um, and as other people have already said today, it's very white, it's very posh. um, And yeah, you've already, I've I've got a load of statistics, but they're very similar to the ones that have been quoted, so I won't go through them. Um, And I think tinkering around the edges of the mainstream media and just perhaps hiring one or two brown faces is not going to tackle those damaging structures that exclude people. Like if you have a brown person who went to Eton who works at the Evening Standard, it's, it's not good enough. Um, and it's not just um, hiring practices, also things like unpaid internships, commissioning work from within your personal networks, rather than having a transparent um, and open submissions process. And and. these um, I'm raising these things, they sound very obvious, but they're things that are being replicated by alternative and independent media. Yeah. Um, so I think we, part of that is that we do need to see journalism as, as a trade, as labour, as work, and something that should be paid for. And not just paid for, but taught. Um, And that's part of what I do in my work as well. So as well as looking, telling stories that are kind of untold and not told elsewhere, what I'm trying to do as well, is think about how I can move away from perpetuating some of these um, damaging structures. So I do some work with Open Democracy. Um, They've got a platform called Shine A Light. It's an investigative journalism storytelling section. And the way that Open Democracy works, it's, it's not perfect, but it's kind of like a federal structure. So you pay a platform fee to them and you fundraise for the cost of your section of the site. Um, and in my fundraising applications, I'm including money for apprenticeship training. So to train young people or other people who haven't gone to university, who haven't got access to unpaid internships, who haven't got the right networks to get into journalism, and actually pay them a living wage while and giving them up. Op- op- opportunity to like, study the, the skills and trade of journalism. Um, it sounds very, sort of, a little bit boring. It's not as sexy as talking about BBC or structures, but I think um, it's, it's a very simple thing that we can do right now, before we've had the revolution, to actually start opening up access to the media. Um, and another thing I think is important, and maybe we can talk about this later, is think about collabor- collaborations. So how can left-wing journalists work with activists, for example, or people working in the public sector who, who are facing the cuts and who are overworked and they don't have the skills to tell these stories? How can we all work together? An example of this is actually from The Guardian, their Counting the Dead project that they did, where they counted the number of people in the US killed by the police. And that project, obviously it relied on The Guardian journalists themselves, but it, it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't established connections with community grassroots organizations who would be in a place and know when something awful is happening, like someone has been attacked or shot by the police. So perhaps that's something that we can think about doing here, like working together, um, journalists and activists, um, and trying to open up these skills a bit more. Um, I'll stop there, because I've gone over time. Thank Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, we've got about uh, just under 40 minutes or so um, for Q&A. Um, before I do, I just wanted to uh, very quickly, because I, I neglected to do so beforehand, because uh, I'm a very bad chair, uh, but just really pay tribute um, to my fellow pan- panellists, also to the organisers, uh, Andrew Dole in particular, for inviting us. Um, but I think you know we just heard, really, from Rebecca um, about what real journalism is. Um, you know, uh, giving voice to the dog that isn't barking, the, the the story that's not being told, has always been at the heart of, to me anyway, what watchdog journalism is about, what the fourth estate spirit is about. And I think um, you know Rebecca is a, is a shining example that this journalism can not only can be done, but is being done. Um, and. Uh, And and in regards to to, um, Jacobin um, Baskar, to me everything that Jacobin stands for, I think, transcends this idea of, uh, you know, left versus right media. I think it is really more and more about reason and truth on the one hand versus the uh, lies and irrationality of concentrated power on the other. And I think there's so much what what I get out of Jacobin is... Um, that real kind of evidence-based authoritative cutting down of those dominant narratives. Um, and Ellie, I mean, uh, I guess, you know, we're all thankful for the fact that people like Ellie are still working in that sphere, albeit on, on the edges of, of, of the mainstream media, and I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering when we think, try to think through practical solutions to some of these problems, that we don't need just need to be shouting from the outside, but thinking about how can we make it easier for the struggle that those journalists within inside those institutions like Ellie, are engaged in, and and Clive just uh you know Clive I guess was one of those very few uh, Labour Party politicians who, you know when shit hit the fan. Uh, year and a half ago um, and there was you know a clearly an an, an immoral illegitimate attempt to unseat a democratically elected Labour I think Clive by his own admission has never been a Corbynista but he stood up and saw it for what it was even when uh, many many journalists at the BBC and the Guardian didn't Um, now uh, questions Uh, I think we'll probably try and take three at a time Um, please keep them as focused as possible, and if there is a particular person you want to address it to on the panel, please do uh, say so. I think we've got some mics coming around, but can can I just start with these three just in front of me, two at the front here, and I'll work my way back. Um, Can I
3: just move that jug? I can't see. Uh, Ellie, Mary, I really want to say you're about the only person that kept me reading The Guardian. (laughs) Along. <laughs> you bring an energy, you bring a, a youthfulness, not necessarily age-wise, but openness that I just really appreciate. And it was just lovely to have you there. And the Guardian should be grateful. Um, apart from that, I want to say also something that's disturbed me about some of the media, left-wing media that's happening and, and so on, is the tone of it. Um, I'm sorry I'm going to name names, but for me, the canary. When I read it, I'm just reading a left-wing version, <coughs> really, of a lot of the right-wing press. It's just, you know, they're, they're doing this shit, aren't the, the Tories awful, aren't we clever? And I'm really sick of it. I don't want to keep reading it. I want something that raises the energy. I want positive things. I want. I loved your stories that you were talking about where you're really connecting with people. I want, you know, and I, I guess more women journalists and a, a sense of... the media is giving people hope and what I notice is that a lot of journalists feel like they've got very cynical because they've been working probably with too many stories of you know people's pain and sorrow and it's made them so they can't use a whole lot of language that I'd like to hear that I'm beginning to hear through Corbyn and and this way of looking at life that's more about connecting people coming together I want to be able to say something like love you know caring um, compassion uh, Even, you know, things like spirituality. I want to be able to have a much broader language. You know, I don't want journalists just running everything down and making everyone depressed. And I think that's part of what the problem is. At the moment, people take drugs. And I've just been with Russell Brand and all of that (laughs) goes on. (laughs) Because of that sense of there's no hope. It's hopeless.
1: Thank you very much.
4: I, I just wanted to raise the question of how structures of power relate to these issues of culture, because I think you're, all the stuff said about group thinking, everyone comes from the same background, and this kind of pseudo-objectivity, I think all really relevant. But for me, the, the kind of five filters of Chomsky and Herman from many years ago, the um, ownership, funding, flax, sourcing, and demons, like the, those five basic elements that kind of keep <laughs> most media organisations in line I think are as relevant today as they ever were and I think I had a great line in a documentary a few years ago which is that the greatest enemy of justice is time and I think one of the reasons for that is you know if something comes along for instance like these very effective you know the very effective analysis I, I think and I'm sure you can break it down in different ways but because that's sort of old old hat we don't really talk about it but I think those things still apply just as much And and I think that there's a really interesting relation between the issue of culture and objectivity and centrism because the very idea of objectivity that still kind of lurks intellectually and coherently behind journalism means that necessarily there, there has to be this sort of consensus that journalists are constantly working on of what is the neutral place from which to be seeing these opposing arguments. And of course, that, that allows for what's happened in the last 30 years when the, you know, the center, so-called, gets shifted and shifted and shifted. And these journalists are, are still trying to be balanced. But I think in the process, what they're doing is just deploying their, their kind of elite groupthink. And so I guess to jump to the end of what I could ramble about, I think compassion as the basis of truth rather than objectivity is the only sensible way to move forward. And the reason, the reason that's the case is only to the extent that we identify with other people's experience and frames um, and histories do we start engaging with the world in a truthful way. Um, you know, objectivity is always a way of trying to sort of step back and look at things where you inevitably just project your own inherited prejudices maybe.
3: Thanks. Uh,
5: my name is Leo. Um, so I have two points. Um, the first one's quite a short one. Basically, Ellie said something about, well, there's no real con- you know, big conspiracy in the media. And of course, that's true. Most of the biases that operate, operate structurally through class and exclusion and so on. But of course, there was a conspiracy in the media. It was called phone hacking. There was a gigantic criminal conspiracy, which a lot of newspapers participated in, and which one journalist who quickly retired afterwards exposed. Now, I think that gets to an important point, which is that if we want to reform the media, we need to build a broad consensus that the current way in which it's funded, in particular, is inadequate. And in order to do that, we need to do more to demonstrate that the media is inadequate than simply to say, look, it's getting Jeremy Corbyn wrong, because, of course, we know that, but a lot of people in in the country as a whole don't. Um, I think one way to do that is to look at all of the things in the last 20 years that the media has failed to expose. Usually things that have blown up into gigantic scandals and disasters which could have been dealt with if we'd known about them beforehand. Arguably the financial crisis falls into that category. Certainly the Iraq War falls into that category where instead the media was complicit in propaganda uh, and propagandizing all 175 of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers back the Iraq War and his own magazine for neoconservative intellectuals in America, the Weekly Standard, came up with the idea before 9-11. Right? So then also to take Grenfell you know, Grenfell is the kind of scandal that could have been exposed before those events took place if we had well-resourced journalists working at a local level with the time and the skill and the intelligence to focus on something as boring as flammable cladding, right? We could have exposed that scandal, if we had a func- especially if we had a functioning local media, and that also gets to the point about funding. The ultimate reality is the commercial media is collapsing in news, because news is inherently harder to monetize online because it's less of a commodity. You can just copy the news from a rival. So the incentive to originate news has collapsed. So we have to publicly fund news if we want to have good news. Public funding is also the only way to guarantee that we have equal influence over the news because who pays the piper calls the tune. And therefore owners control the media, but also so do people who are just better off because they can pay more to subscribe, they were also more lucrative targets for advertising. So you can make more advertising money. So the quality press has tiny circulation, much more money, and much more resources. You know, The Daily Mail's political power comes from its journalistic resources. The fact it can do a number on anyone it doesn't like right? by throwing five journalists at it or whatever. So the only way we can do it is public funding. But the BBC obviously shows the limits of that because the BBC is very, very responsive to government, because government sets its funding level, right? Um, And and that that inbuilt bias can only be got round by having a form of democratic control which bypasses parties. I think here we can use a kind of tenet of liberal ideology against the prevailing consensus by saying, well, we all agree that the state shouldn't direct media. Liberals agree with that. But we also can't fund it privately anymore. Therefore, the only solution has to be one where Individual people get a portion of that fund and they decide who it goes to, and you have basic limits to prevent corruption, you know, um, uh, dispersing the money. But that requires journalists to be embedded in local communities and have deep connections with them in order to get them to turn out and give them their money every so often, or their portion of public funds. It means we all have the same level of influence because we all give the same amount of money. You could bar advertising to get rid of that problem, have everything that's produced freely available. Um, And if you do that, you also, to some extent, solve the training problem. Because when you look at why are people not being trained, it's because there's no money. And also because the informal training model in British journalism was local journalism. You started off at a local newspaper and then you graduated to national newspapers. And local media has died, largely because advertising has gone online. And the result is now you need to be well off. You need to be able to pay for for doing work that's unpaid for a serious period of time. That's how they screen people out, who are working class among other, other mechanisms. That's one of the most powerful. Anyway, sorry, gone along <laughs> um, uh, uh, Do you want to respond? Yeah,
1: yeah okay, let's, let's
0: have a, a quick round of responses and then we'll take um, uh, yeah. um So, yeah, I worked, I was a journalist for 13, well, more than 13 years, almost 15 years, so on local, local newspapers and then for uh, BBC Look which is actually, BBC Look and BBC Radio Norfolk are the uh, television stations in which Adam Partridge based myself um, <laughs> on, so, uh, so I didn't work for BBC Nor- Norwich, I worked for BBC Look so I'm always quite clear, um, but I have experienced that, the same as Eddie May, being a black working class boy, in the BBC, and it's a, it's very much I felt very much an outsider, very much a glass ceiling, and it's actually one of the reasons why I think in the end I channeled a lot of my energy into the uh, into the reserves, into the military, because I just felt there was a glass ceiling there which I couldn't get through. It's it's, it's quite interesting. Um, so picking up on some of the points, um, someone talked about reason and truth. I can't remember who it was. I think it was down here, and I, I think this is I think is a fantastic point. And, I, and the point that was made about uh, the canary. Um, I think we have to be, just, just open ourselves up to the fact that if we put reason and truth at the heart of our journalism, we may not always like uh, what it comes back with and tells about our own movement, uh, <coughs> and it may challenge us. And I think that's something we have to be prepared for. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think we need to be challenged. Like, for example, I'd love to know how the decision, decision not to debate Brexit happened. Um, no, we didn't. The policy debate. But let's that's, that's, that's not, that's not digress. I really like to, I'd really really like to... There are things that I'd like to know inside our party, transparency within our own movement, which I think is necessary. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I might not like the answers that come back. You might not like the answers that come back. I think on slowing down the pace of the news, one of the things that I understand about the news that we have at the moment is that it's a constant churn. And I actually think, if you look at the way that news operates, today's news is tomorrow's chip paper. It's a constant surge, a constant churn. And I think it's part of a process of keeping us off balance. We're not able to actually focus on the things that matter to us as a society, as an economy, and as a community. And I think that's that's actually part of a a wider strategy. And I think it's something that we should think about in that kind of and something that undermines quality journalism. Um, Compassion over objectivity. I think that's a really important point that was raised. And I genuinely feel that this kind of... I, I did touch on it, but I think that's a far better way of putting it. About this kind of well they said this they said that actually objectivity does not exist generally <laughs> you can be more objective than not but actually we all have our own biases I know the journalist I work for the BBC we prided ourselves on our objectivity but I was able to use bias in my reports by giving less time and one to the other I reported on both but the angle and the words and the language I used I and the pictures that I used <laughs> yeah. I was able to project my own particular political positions onto things in a very subtle way. And I know that happens a lot more often from the other side. And in terms of local media, look, you're spot on. I, I led a, an NUJ delegation to meet Matt Hancock, who is the uh, one of the ministers in, the, in DCMS, Department of Culture, Media, and Sport. And we expected, we went to him to talk about the NUJ Local Matters campaign, which is basically about the crisis in local journalism. And you know, it's been picked up, Grenfell potentially would not have happened if we had properly local-funded investigative well-resourced journalism and we expected to go in there with a bit of a fight with matt hancock i raised it in parliament um he stood up and went yes i'll have a meeting with you sat down i was like stunned we got to the meeting i expect him to fob us off and we said local media is dying there's a crisis the internet's in part killing it but also the big businesses don't see it as profitable anymore and they're putting out and he said yes we agree There's a problem, which I think kind of uh, tells you that if the Tories understand there's a problem with local media, then there probably is a massive problem with local media. So what we've what we've what we've done there is that we're now going to go away. We've suggested and proposed that we have a commission to investigate what is happening in local media, the scale of it. I think it's pretty obvious. And then what we can do. Uh, to fund alternative models of funding potentially that's what I think the NUJ would like to look at how we resource uh, local journalism when the business model for local journalism on print especially is dying before our very eyes and I think that's critical so thank you Uh,
6: I'll just pick up one question to save time which is um, the question about the canary and thanks for for what you said as well Um, on that note, if, if you do have left-wing journalists that you think are good, do tell them, because the people who think they're bad are telling them. <laughs> so so it, it does help when people say nice things. Um, it sort of makes you want to keep doing it. Um, in, in terms of the canary, I think that the useful way to view the canary is, is a, a symptom rather than a cause. I think that... Um, the mainstream media, particularly like those outlets that you would expect to sort of support support the Labour Party and support Jeremy Corbyn, but who've instead <coughs> undermined him. Uh, I think they have created a vacuum and uh, the Canary has sort of filled that vacuum. And and you know, things like Squawk Box and Evolve Politics. Those kind of websites I think have filled a vacuum that has been created by a failure of the mainstream to engage properly with this movement and to um, respect it as a legitimate movement rather than trying to write it off. I know his name is Mudd, but I think Nick Clegg did put it very well. He said that um, Jeremy Corbyn is the most insulted and least scrutinized candidate that Labour has ever run. Because um, instead of trying to understand why he suddenly became so popular, instead of treating him like a legitimate political candidate, uh, the The mainstream media responded by just kind of uh, trying to get rid of him. And um, Thomas Frank, who's one of my favorite American commentators, wrote a great book called Listen Liberal. He said this about uh, the way that the American press, the DC press, uh, reacted to Trump, which is... uh, They treated him as though he was a foreign object who had rudely inserted himself into their creamy world Um, and he says that although trump's disapproval rating continues to soar the more the mainstream media insults him the less trust the public have and i think it's because they can see that it's still this kind of herd mentality and there's still a lack of analysis there and i think Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump could not be more different, but I think that the way that the media treats them both is the same, which is to insult them rather than to scrutinize them. So I think that's the way to see the canary, is that it's filling that gap. But I think that all of the um, problems that we've talked about today, I don't think that the canary can solve those. And I have a particular issue with its business model, which is that it's pay-per-click, which I think encourages writing sensationalist, exaggerated stories, which I don't think are particularly helpful and lacking in analysis. I also think that if you're claiming to be a left-wing paper, you should be paying your staff um, properly, and you should be giving them decent conditions. You should uh, have a higher standard of employment than pay-per-click. So I do have a problem with its its business model. but I think until, you know, the canary will continue to exist so long as the mainstream continues to fail in its sort of duties. Um, and so I think that if, if you have problems with the canary, the way that you address it is to address all of the problems that we've been talking about today and try to bring about an entire media that is fit for purpose. <laughs> That guy sounds awful smart. Um, he, he, you know, he
7: picked up his uh, journalism skills a little bit of it in the United States. As Nick Clegg was once a Nation intern, uh, the American uh, uh, liberal left uh, uh, journal. He was, he was briefly a Nation uh, intern um, at the Nation. Yeah. And uh, Ed Miliband was also a Nation intern. And uh, the famous story that Alexander Coburn used to tell was that his first day as a Nation intern. Um, you know, he had uh, uh, lunch with, with Ed, and he, he turned, and he looked at Ed, and it was something that he picked up from, what's his name, the former editor of, um, of Penthouse, but it was a thing where he was like, uh, is your hate pure? And Ed just looked at him up blankly, and he said, is your hate pure? And he said, well, well, Alex, I, I don't think I hate anyone. And then Alexander Colburn said, and for that moment, I wrote him off, and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, David uh, did have some hatred, but unfortunately for the raw raw people. Um, but but you know, I, I would say the one only thing I would push back on is that this idea of, of, of truths and facts is not enough because fundamentally uh, there is truth to what let's say our, our opponents are saying. Let's say the issue of austerity, right? We're living in a in a capitalist uh, economy. Um, our the welfare states. Um, you have a little bit more of one than, than we do in the U.S., but they're, they're, it's funded by from <laughs> private accumulation, right? There is there is a case that firms need to be profitable, and that means restraints and competitive exports mean means that there is a perfectly rational case for the other side. Our argument is a moral and ethical one. We look at the situation and say this is a system based on exploitation and domination, and that's needless. The level of brutality is needless. So we a lot of our case is, is more a, a moral and ethical case than one that we just say is rooted in, in truths or facts or, 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 or whatnot. So that's, that's one thing I would disaggregate. It's not even just our, and even the way I portrayed it was wrong, it was not even just our uh, class interests, the class interests of the vast majority versus the others, because obviously they're, they're intertwined, right? You know, if, if, you're, um, you know, if we hypothetically <laughs> push our wage demands, too uh, too high and our firms got a business and we're we're in trouble. Obviously, you know, I, I'm a socialist, I think there's an alternative uh, uh, to this, but but uh, I think we can't just leave it at, at just truth and, and um and rationality. Thanks. <laughs> I'll just be
2: really quick. Um I think if you tell a story right, then it will resonate with people that affect. I find a lot of the stories that I write, I get people contacting me and saying, you know, thanks for writing that. The DWP has just been pissing me around for ages. I didn't think it was happening to anyone else. It's really good to hear. So I think, and that's what the right is good at doing. They're really good at telling stories. That's why so many people read the tabloids. They're really um, engaging. So we have to be better at that. I just That's say, great. Uh, this entire
8: time, this whole media
1: conference, nobody has mentioned entertainment. OK, I, 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 thanks very much. But I, I, I want to just do this in orderly fashion so we can get as many in as possible in the last few minutes who are remaining. So uh, if you can just put your hand up and keep the points as brief as possible, no more than one minute. have got one over there, um, two or three in the middle there, uh, and one, two, three, four here. I'll try and get as, as many, if not all, of those as possible if we can keep them short. <coughs> Thanks. Hi, um, this is uh, a few questions for Clive Lewis. Um, Firstly, it sounded like you kind of alluded to this, but just to to check, do you agree with many on the left and the right that the BBC is biased? Um, How do you feel about the BBC political editor needing a bodyguard at the conference? And um, something that came up at another event yesterday was the proposal to have the BBC director general as an elected position. Is that something that you might support? And if so, how might you imagine it happening? Great, brilliant. Uh, A model questioner. Uh, Three focused, short questions. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Let's get as many more of those in as we can.
3: Hi. Thank you, Ellie May, before you leave the room, if you have left the room. Thank you so much. as a female journalist, also freelance, doing um, uh, investigative stuff, it's very unsupported, it's very difficult. What kind of support do you think could be available for us, particularly Clive, um, via the NUJ, which I'm a member of, and what sort of training do you think needs to happen, particularly in universities? Where can we get those resources? Where could we get access to kind of different models and alternative book lists and alternative speakers from within the profession who might be willing to come? And talk and get Thank some you. sort of cohesion.
1: Thank you. Let's um, take as many more as we can. These are going very well. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I hope I'm not misreading any of your arguments when I say it seems to me there's a slight disconnect between the title of this forum um, and the way that you've explained uh, the media as you understand it in that it's not, it seems very clear that from all of the different publications that you've worked for and that you have experience of, and you have discussed today, um, it's not just one media; it's it's many different forms of media um, that seem to have balkanised uh, most, you know, in, in the last ten years especially. Um, and it seems that maybe a starting point for a kind of solutions-based uh, approach to what we do about media um, is is going to come from recognising that there are those differences uh, and that you may not. Uh, be able to replace something like the Canary because the Canary is always going to be the type of media that appeals to people who are looking for, as like this gentleman said, uh, entertainment or um, for some sort of polemic. Um, so that, that kind of idealised media uh, would, necess- would necessitate an idealised um, audience. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, just, just two more. Uh, let's take a couple. Of, uh, let's take one on the back, Tim, uh, and whoever else is closest to you. Me. Uh, yeah. Okay. <coughs> go. Go for it. Oh,
2: um, I just wondered what um, whether people think that um, trying to get shops to stop stocking, stop stocking, the Sun, Daily Mail, etc., works. Brilliant. Okay.
1: Thanks. Uh, can we have Tim,
8: just two at the back there, please, to finish off. Thanks. Uh, my name is Tim Gobbsell from the Campaign for President of Broadcasting Freedom, a long-standing uh, trade union. Socialist media reform organisation. But very, two very big points to, to make. First is, I wish we could stop using this phrase "mainstream media," which people do use very awkwardly. I was at a similar event a couple of years ago, and somebody asked, "What's mainstream about warmongering and, and demonising the poor?" In the CPBF, we use different to we could call them. You call them big media, or you can call them corporate media. But if you stick to the word "mainstream," then you've got the problem. <coughs> that we heard before, that the alternative is alternative and is small and marginalised and in, 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 insignificant. Now, I wanted. secondly, I wanted to talk about the new media, this wonderful proliferation of Corbynista media that there's been over the last couple of years. It's a bit of a repeat of what happened in the 1980s when very cheap production and printing, computer setting, and cheap printing happened. I was involved in it myself. Um, and all those things, they all collapsed. They were swept aside by Thatcherism. Now this new wave has got to be made to stick and to me that gives us a responsibility to sustain them there's been a lot of people talking today about the financing of media but look at it like this, the the Canary was mentioned on the other the Squawk Box and the other sites, they have got audiences of hundreds of thousands of people which no radical left wing media have ever had before. So what are we doing about it? You might think that magazines and newspapers that you wanted to read 10, 20 years ago, you paid money for them. You might have paid 20 quid a week. Now, the internet's done a terrible thing. It's told us, as well as giving us the chance to read these media, it's told us that everything is free. Now, why should they be free? I will ask you all, the 20 quid a week you would have spent on magazines and newspapers 20 years ago, what are you spending it on now? There should be ways of, hyper subscription is one, but most importantly, it seems to be crowdfunding. Great. Everybody should be supporting and giving money to all these organisations to keep them going.
1: Great. Thanks. And there is a uh, an, an initiative called the Media Fund. If you Google it, it's trying to do just that. Uh, one person in the back, and then we'll just take one more. Uh, just this lady at the front. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I have to. We we'll have to wrap
4: up then. This,
1: uh, this kind
4: of um, <laughs> actually reflects on what you've just been saying. I just wanted to ask if you think that there's a place for Wiki Tribune, um, in, in for
1: as a project okay um just uh, just two 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 more at the front uh, very quickly and then uh, just one minute each for the for the panelists to, to wrap up
9: hello is that working good um i just want to say three mentioned three things communications establishment and, con- and capitalist consumer culture because that are three things which the media have to relate to now communications my grime nephew and a group of his friends having never insisted on voting and saying politics had nothing for them did support Corbyn because he communicated. And a lot of media does not communicate in the, in the everyday speak of a ever increasing number of people. The establishment, which refers to the BBC and an awful lot of cultural edifices and institutions in this country, is very, very deep rooted and historically very, 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 very uh, criticisable. And the problem is, particularly with the BBC, for all the good that they do, they are rooted heavily in the establishment. And that anchor will keep them down against any form of criticism. (laughs) And what was the third thing I said? Oh, yeah. And most of the media, and most of them, and I say media generally, including leaflets, advertising, everything else, is based on this political system, which is a capitalist consumer culture. Right? And that is the thing we have to actually bypass in order to get any kind of political change in communications. Thank you. Thank you. And one more time.
3: Thank you. Um, I've worked in anti-racism education for some time, and I, um, some of the work is involved going into schools and training teachers on dismantling prejudice, prejudice um, challenging stereotypes, looking at assumptions. And one of the things that we would do is we take a step back and look at a newspaper and, and kind of assess as to who to be scared of, what to be interested in, you know, and what's perpetuated time and time again in the media. Um, and I think when we talk about training, one of the things that's missing is about critical thinking. Yes. And the story that's not being told is about how complex issues are. Important to get that simple message across, but not don't believe in this believe that instead but this issue has many many answers many ways of thinking about it and I think that diversity really needs to be told.
8: Okay Um,
0: one minute. Um, just to pick up that last point I think that links into the stuff that's been spoken about throughout this conference I think which is political education within our schools Um, because that that ability to critically think critically and analyse is complemented by a media fit for purpose within our democracy. You need the two together. You can't just have one. If you've got, you know, automatons, consuming automatons coming out of our schools, then you can have any you can have as brilliant media as you want. They just they will just stick with what they have. So the two are complementary and I think that's a really good point. On the BBC, is the BBC biased? Yes, but it's the best of a bad bunch. Um, it's structurally biased. I think that's been touched upon by the comrade at the front here who was speaking earlier. Laura Kusenberg, I think, is a disgrace that uh, any woman needs to have bodyguards at our conference. Absolute disgrace. Tackle, play, you know, in football, it's that expression, play the player, play the ball, not the player, you know? Argue with what she has to say. Don't threaten her, you know? Because we're not like that. That's not how we roll on the left. Um, You know, Whatever you think about journalism, question that. Don't threaten her. Uh, In terms of the general director being elected, I think that would be a start, and I think that would open up a debate and develop a, a hunger from the public to actually change the BBC. And if you, can, if you have an elected director general, then they're accountable to some degree. So it's not going to solve the BBC, but I think it's an interesting idea to be explored. On uh, the question of the NUJ, if you come and see me afterwards, we can, I, can actually, I can actually approach the NUJ about how they can help with the training or, or advising on journalists. Problem is it's a professional body and part of the NUJ structure is such that it kind of defends the professionalism of journalism. And there is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a tension here between the rise of volunteer kind of part-time journalists and those who do it for a living. And it's something we can talk about, and I'm sure that they, they need to kind of be flexible and adaptive, and I'm sure they will be. But if you come and see me afterwards, I'd like to take that up with you. In terms of speakers, alternative speakers. Uh, NEF, New Economics Foundation, and NEON, uh, who I've been involved with for some time now, have a program which Eddie May is, is partly responsible for developing speakers. They train public speakers to then people to speak in the media. So in the last election, they had a body of about 20 or 30 people from all walks of life who came in, had media training, and were then voices, alternative voices in uh, the corporate media to uh, speak and put forward our arguments. So if you want to get involved, in kind of being in front of house, and I think that's a good way. I'm happy to kind of put you in touch with them. Um, and I think, that just finally finishing off, um, I would say, if you're gonna do anything after this meeting, it's definitely read quality investigative journalism and support it, pay for it. You know, Put your hand in your pocket and contribute to that. I think it's really important. It's the one thing we can all do practically when we come out of here, otherwise, question everything and take nothing uh, for granted because ultimately, the, the, how the media functions and how effective it is is as important as how critical we think about things and the questions we ask ourselves. Thanks very much. Um, just if I may, just I'm gonna add uh, one
1: thing to that which is, uh, as well as reading investigative quality journalism and paying for it, um, come to our Media Democracy Festival Day on the 2nd of December in London which will be circulated due course. Because what we need as much as anything else to do uh, to support journalism is to organize and to organize on, on, the, on, this, on this particular issue of solutions. we've talked a lot today about the problem and although there we, we can you know we, we, we differ slightly on some of the semantics, we're all basically on the same page. The really really difficult thing is we all agree on the ends but but how, what are the means to the ends? And I think uh, you know Leo kind of touched on this earlier. But we need to think about how all the different options to democratize, uh, to decentralize, and to make the BBC more accountable. We need to think about all the different options to check the concentrated power of voice that is in the hands of billionaires like uh, the Murdochs. And we need to, probably more important than anything and more immediately, we need to find a way to finish the Leveson inquiry. uh, Because that holds the key to some of the most profound a uh, systemic institutional cover-up, probably, in modern British political history.
7: So, so very quickly, I would just say that there's a certain way we should pay attention to the phenomenon of segmented markets, right? Of just like, every, between social media and other developments in capitalism now, we're getting to the point where you could consume whatever you want to consume in a very particularized, individual way. And I think the danger of certain publications on the left uh, is that we could end up just building a very, very large niche, media. We could end up just dominating a a segmented market instead of actually reaching out and winning over more people (coughs) and serving as a useful base for politics. This is connected with the fact that uh, a broader political dilemma that we have is that there's a resurgence now in left-wing politics in the UK, of course, uh, even in the US, but this resurgence is still tied to a quite fragile Social base for this politics. Uh, William Morris has ha, had a line that was that said something like, um, "You know, workers think they are a class. We must, you know, our role is to convince them that they ought to be a society." Uh, now we're in a position where even the class part is kind of um, in in question. We kind of have to go back to, to actually thinking about where are the ways in which we can have left wing ideas that aren't just ideas that aren't just debated, particularly among professional class people and, and others. But actually reach and 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 connect with with ordinary people. And I think the balance of that and the really hard thing is to do that in such a way without just thinking the route to that is just simplification or essentially con, uh, condescending, as opposed to you know the ability of people to actually deal with complex ideas and to make these ideas accessible. In other words, there should be no barrier to entry, but still be challenging. So the final thing I would say is that you know the. The Economist, if you're going to read The Economist, you don't have to have read Adam Smith before. But it's, it's in the bones of what they're, they're doing. Um, if you're going to read Jacobin, unfortunately, there's a few articles that you might have to read Karl Marx. So you might have to get certain references. And that in itself is a failure of editing, a failure on our end. And that's, I think, what we, what we need. Media that, that challenges people, but media that, that doesn't have the, the barrier to entry or require this kind of prerequisite uh, reading to, to uh, delve into.
2: Yeah, I would just agree with that, and I think there is, um, I'd just like to emphasise before everyone goes to just think about media as being out in the world, so it is important to talk about the theory and the structures, but um, I go back to this idea about collaborations and, and what you were saying about public education, we need to learn how to speak to everyone and not just to people who have gone to the same university as us and taken the same political theory class that we took. Um, so I think that's really important and um, workshops is is one way of doing that I do a lot of workshops with young people from working class backgrounds who are not going to go off to university to study these subjects and I ask them about the media, they don't trust any of it but their lived experiences are are really compelling and fascinating and, and they're just not used to being asked about them or asked what they think so I think we need to find some way where we're all engaging with with those communities but not in a patronizing way like you say um there are people doing it just the final point there are people doing this like for example if you look at most housing activism work that's going on in london a lot of it is um it is migrant communities working with perhaps more seasoned activists and those activists are sharing the skills that they built up through things like occupy and uh, the migrants are coming to the, it's like an equal relationship and they're doing fantastic work. And it would be great if journalists got more involved with that and helped with things like FROI, so freedom of information um, requests, helping them to uh, like make their research and their activism more rigorous. Um, yeah, so I would just say where you can collaborate um, and <laughs> read independent media. That's one thing that The Guardian will say. Like If, if you speak to the, um, Editor of the international section, they'll say we just don't get the clicks. So you, you lot, have to read um, the sort of investigative stuff and the stuff that is important. Um, yeah, and thank you for coming today.
8: That's
1: great. Um, I think that's all we have time for. Just to say thanks again to the panelists, to the organisers of the World Transform. Uh, next week we're meeting in Manchester for the People's Assembly Take Back Manchester Festival. Uh, That's at 2 p.m. in the main marquee. The event's called Media for the Many, Not the Few.